They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now, they bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two men power trip of wrestling. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling, powered by ProWrestlingTees.com. ProWrestlingTees.com has every wrestling shirt you've ever wanted by basically every wrestler you've ever thought of. So wrestling shirts are cool again, and at this time, I'm going to welcome in my tag team partner. And partner, this is No Laughing Matter, Primetime John Paz. How are you, buddy? Ooh, I'm doing pretty damn good, Chad. How are you? I'm on cloud nine right now, prime time, because I'm quite inspired by our guest today, and that is, I guess I was going to call him, you know, head trainer of NXT, but he's not anymore, and that is Bill DeMott, and that's what we're going to talk about right now, and I'm getting right into it. And I guess, you know, one thing you could say, if perception is reality, we just got real with Bill DeMott, and for all of the negative press, and for all of the things that have been said about this guy over the last two months, whether it's on Twitter or in a wrestling article or uh, and it, you know some kind of uh, former trainee voicing their opinion against him, um, it's safe to say that if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. And Bill DeMott, to me, proved to us that it's really a misguided representation of him that's been portrayed out there. A uh, hundred thousand percent yeah i mean as you said perception is reality but each person i guess is going to react differently to you know some training methods i guess or, or whatever you want to say but he's old his old school mentality and i feel like you need that toughness and that mentality if you're going to make it to the big times i mean the WWE. i mean you're being trained in nxt or you're being trained by bill demont right and you you want to jump to the biggest league in the world, which is WWE, you think you should be pussyfooting around and, and it shouldn't be tough? No, it should be the toughest experience of your life to prepare you for the biggest leap you're ever going to make because once you get into WWE, that you're in the big time. And if you can't cut it, if you can't make it, you know, you may go back to the trainer and it's like, hey, what happened with this guy? You know, you weren't tough on him and, and uh, quote unquote, you know, he wasn't tough enough to, to last in WWE. And I really feel like you have to be tough on these guys because they're going to go make, you know, possibly, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the WWE and they're performing on the biggest stage. They better be ready. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, you know, and yes, we'll preface this by saying neither one of us has ever taken a bump. Okay. Neither one of us has had the opportunity to get in there and, and actually experience the in-ring action because we've taken different paths in our lives. We love the wrestling business. We support the wrestling business. But have we ever gotten in the ring? No. Now, you know, I know what it was like to work at, with the WWE, albeit quite briefly, uh, but I know what it's like to put in, you know, a 60-hour-a-week 
uh, job with WWE and the level of expectations that they expect even just out of the production team. So you look at Bill DeMott and his career, and he was trained by Johnny Rods. And we know where Johnny Rods trains his guys in Brooklyn. All right, I don't really think you're going to get the cushy, uh, you know, <laughs> lovable, uh, pave the road in candy experience when you're training with Johnny Rods. So you train the way you were trained. And I, I just, I, I really scratch my head at the fact that the, this next crop of people getting into the business, if you're not fully in love with the business and know what to expect, then I guess you can be offended by his methods or, you know, feel quote unquote bullied uh, by Bill DeMott. But as the E60 piece that just came out uh, about you know two weeks ago or so, um, I feel like, you know, his portrayal was quite good in that. And I don't know if I'm wrong, correct me, but, you know, I, I just, I, I'm not seeing, um, you know, what's been out there about Bill DeMott. Yeah, you're totally right because you watch the E60 thing, right? He's talking to Adam Rose and it's, and it's tough love, or actually, I believe he was Leo Kruger at, you know, obviously at the beginning point, and then he becomes Adam Rose, but basically Ray LaPond, he's talking to him, and it's tough love, and you got to nail this, you know, you want to you want to make it a big thing, you got to nail it, and you're just sitting there watching, it, and it's like, yeah, this guy's trying to make it to the WWE. I mean, you got you got to be tough on him. You got to you can't just be like, oh well, you missed that, and and you blew that spot, and but no, he was like, you know, you got to nail this, nail it right now, and. And nail it, and then you see the transformation of Adam Rose. He nails it, and then you see the love and admiration at the end with Demont, you know, hugging him and and uh, basically saying you nailed it. You know, I, I knew you would, and it was all from that tough love training that he had from Bill. I mean, th- that's just the way it should always be, in my view, anyway. I I agree with you, and uh, I I really hope that when you listen to this, you you take home the same thing that we did, and as that as we look. If you're going to come on thinking that we're going right into the interview, ready to trash all the people that trashed him, and this is going to be a big F you to everybody, no, it's not. So if you're looking for that, don't listen to this. This is Bill DeMott's career. This is Bill DeMott's path as a trainer. This is Bill DeMott's overview of what he's done in the wrestling business. And whereas I think other people who may have more name value that have had Bill DeMott on his podcast feed off of that negative you know, BS, if you will, um, it's not here, but this is one hell of an interview. Oh, yeah. My favorite part, I mean, obviously people are going to want to hear about the, the Tough Enough and the NXT and WWE stuff, but I don't know, me growing up as as a, you know, a fan, I was I loved um, the feud he had with Macho Man Randy Savage when he was Hugh Morris. I mean, I like that stuff and the cool stuff with the AWF, Crash the Terminator, his time in Japan with the Wing promotion and Mr. Pogo and stories about Kevin Sullivan. I mean, just great, great stuff. And obviously we get into his uh, matches he had with Hulk Hogan. And uh, that, I mean, that's the real fun stuff that I really, really enjoyed about the interview, his career and obviously his uh, matches in WCW with Lance Storm and Shane Douglas. So that's the stuff that I personally really, really enjoyed being a big fan of his is, is, is hearing about his whole career, not just his time as a trainer, but his time as a wrestler and uh, the stuff at the Macho Man was is awesome because how many people can really say, you know, you make your debut in a company and say, oh, yeah, by the way, you're feuding with Macho Man Randy Savage, possibly the greatest wrestler of all time. Yeah, I agree. I realized you forgot to mention uh, Crash the Terminator uh, being the AWF heavyweight <laughs> champion. But I'm going to yeah, turn the other just... cheek on that one because uh, <laughs> I, I, ha- I was dying. I was literally stirring 
to get ready to ask about the AWF, which he, he did love, and uh, that's very uh, – well, I should say he loved that I was ready to ask the question, not necessarily loved the uh, the <laughs> AWF. But uh, prime time, it's a hell of an interview. You did a great job. I, I really think this is one of the uh, the best that we've had today because it's just it's, – it's very real, and it's very raw because – like I said, we don't get into all that, that negative stuff. We talk about NXT at great lengths. So if you love NXT, you're going to love it. He gives such a great backstory to what they're doing right now in the live TV specials and the, and the house shows and the touring. It was, it's really a great insight from a guy who's really been, he said, 28 years he's been in the wrestling business. And that's a hell of a, uh, it's a, hell of a journey. So prime time, with that being said, June 13th, we have the big Glenn Kelly Eternal Tranquility Benefit Seaside Heights, New Jersey at the Beachcomber featuring WWE legends and current TNA heavyweight champion Kurt Angle. We have Mick Foley is going to be there, uh, Tatanka, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, uh, Tito Santana, who does get a mention on this show. Actually, Duggan does as well. So we've got some, some great guys that are going to be there. And, of course, former ECW world champion Justin Credible will be appearing alongside of us doing his thing. And we will be broadcasting live, and it's going to be really cool. And uh, we're just a couple weeks out. And, of course, how could I forget that the table will be sponsored by our sponsors for the show, and that is ProWrestlingTees.com. And primetime, I'm going to turn it over to you and send it home and over to Bill DeMott. Oh, yeah. Of course, uh, as Chad mentioned, the big uh, 613 Seaside, New Jersey, big show with Glenn Kelly should be awesome. Manpower Triple recording the show. Just incredible to be with us. And of course, go to ProWrestlingTeed.com for all your pro wrestling needs. They are making wrestling shirts cool again. And of course, our plugs here on YouTube. You can subscribe to the Two Man Power Trip of Wrestling. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review, leave us some feedback, tell us what you think of the show. We would love to hear from you. Also, on Facebook, you can like the two-man power trip of wrestling. And then on the Twitter machine, at Pal and at two-man power trip. Always some good, fun little anecdotes on there. And then, of course, our website, tmptofwrestling.com. That is tmptofwrestling.com. And on that page, you will see an Amazon link. Please click on it and do your shopping through Amazon, through us. And we get a little kickback, so we would really hope that you would do that for us. That would be great. And now I can send you to a great, great interview that we did. Now, before I send it over, I just want to say that I had the pleasure of talking to Bill for a couple of weeks on Facebook. We were going back and forth. And anybody thinks that he's negative at all, you're totally wrong. Because if you do follow him on Facebook, you'll see he literally will leave a positive message every day. And it's, and it's really cool, some of the stuff that he puts on there. So, um you're really going to enjoy this interview. We go in-depth into everything you want to go in-depth to, WCW, AWF, the Wing Promotion, of course, WWE, NXT, Tough Enough, all the good stuff. So, folks, this is No Laughing Matter. Our guest presence on the show today is No Laughing Matter because we are joined by a former two-time WCW U.S. champion, a former WCW tag champion, a former wing tag and world champion, and of course, and how could we forget, a former AWF world champion. He's an acclaimed wrestling trainer of the future of the wrestling business, 
Formerly Hugh Morris, he is Bill DeMott. And Bill DeMott, thank you so much for joining the two-man power trip of wrestling. Thanks, guys. AWF, I forgot all about that. Oh, we are going to get to the AWF because uh, very, it's not even, I can't even really say it's like fondest memories. It's just odd memories of coming across the AWF, but we will definitely get to that. Um, But what I wanted to say, we have what I wanted to say right off the top is, uh, you know, last weekend uh, NXT stopped in Philadelphia for the first time after a string of uh, successful house shows, WrestleMania weekend and at the Arnold Classic. What are your thoughts? on NXT having the ability to tour now, and how do you prepare a kid who is new to the business to perform on the road? Um, I mean, this is what's been groomed for NXT. I think the the vision for a long time was, you know, where where can we go and where 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 can you take it? And um, it all goes back to what to what they're doing. It all goes back to. Uh, the leadership, it goes back to uh, Triple H, and it goes back to the system. And they're prepared. I mean, they're as prepared as anybody on any main roster in the history of the business. So, I, you know, I'm real happy for them. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very pleased with the stuff I read and the, and the cats that I still, you know, that I talk to regularly and stuff. And the NXT's on the rise, man, and it's all due to preparation. And that's that's a big that's a big part of the success is every every cat there is prepared and i know uh nxt uh as well as uh when it was fcw you know you you guys traveled uh locally to do shows outside of the tv tapings and and how was the vibe once you got out and performed in front of that different live audience and uh how they took to each individual character i mean it's i i guess it's like any Anybody else, an actor uh, or someone who's in a play or a theater guy, they, they want to be in front of more people. And you got to see the rise from, I mean, back from OBW and, and Deep South and, and FCW and back to HWA and all that. You you give these, <clears throat> excuse me, you give these independent kids a format and, a, you know, a place to do their thing and the more people come, they step up, and that's when you start to see who the stars are really going to be. And, you know, and, of course, we're just a couple days removed from the last uh, NXT television special. And preparing for the uh, the first couple that uh, hit the airwaves earlier this year, what was the vibe like with getting those guys prepared for that? Were they – was anybody really, uh, you know, feeling that the stage was really set to, to kind of outshine prior performances? And, and also, again, it's another – it's a different kind of live crowd because you're going – live across TV rather than, you know, taping a couple weeks of TV. But how was that preparing the kids uh, for for an experience like that? Well, I, I don't think it's any different. I think that's the challenge. As a coach, you have to challenge. Uh, all your all your best coaches challenge every player from the traveling squad to the, to the main roster team. Uh, when it's time to step up, step up and be prepared. So there's, there's a, it's a process. And, it's not hard with that group that's there currently to say who's going to step up or who's going to raise the bar. Um, it's a good atmosphere. There's a good locker room, and uh, they they test each other, you know, uh, in a good way, in a productive way. And and some of them will, you know, uh, 
with the risk of, you know, excuse my language for a minute, but it used to be the term is follow that bitch. <laughs> that's kind of the mentality is whoever's out first, set the bar, know what your job is, and make everybody rise to the occasion. And, and that, that's good, healthy competition. Now, we've had the pleasure of uh, interviewing A.J. Kirsch, who's a former Tough Enough guy, Daniel Pewter, obviously, former Tough Enough guy, um, ACH, who was a guy uh, who's in Ring of Honor, who tried out for WWE. They all had glowing things to say about you as a trainer, and they basically said, "You're the way you train is, let's see if this guy will make it. Like, it's tough love, and, you know, if, if the guy isn't going to make it here, he's definitely not going to make it in WWE. You agree with the that assessment? <clears throat> well, all, all three of those guys, uh, I'm glad all their checks cleared, so they said that. Um, <laughs> and so I'm just kidding. I never paid them. They asked me, but I wouldn't do it. Um, <laughs> the, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to say. You know, I, I'm the same all the time. You know, it's uh, <clears throat> I'm the same all the time, and and going into any tryout camp that I was a part of, that's part of the first half hour. So it was a conversation of, hey, guys this guys and girls, this is why we're here. This is what we're going to do. Um, I, I just try to treat everybody the way I would want to be treated at a tryout to get into the biggest company in the industry. Uh, and more importantly, just being honest off the bat and saying, if this this is the measuring stick, and that's that's the truth about what when I was a part of it and the tryout stuff and things like that. Tough enough's a whole different a whole different animal because you have that TV personality. So you had you know TV build them on and TV build them on and coach and trainer are two different people. Uh, oh, and the only reason I'm different on TV is because you don't see the full conversation. You see the, you know, every, every good TV movie or, or series has a bad guy. <clears throat> and that was my role. And I wasn't a bad guy like, you know, uh, you know, walking around town just knocking people off. I was the bad guy who, who was chosen to be the honest one and, and the no frills. Uh, what you don't see on a daily basis from the tough enoughs is the sit-down conversations, the one-on-ones, the lifting guys up and lifting girls up. Um, so that, that, that's always going to be the thing, right? Perception's reality. <clears throat> but AJ, talk to him to this day, stand-up guy, uh, pewter, um, all those cats are, are good people, talented. That ACH. What a what a talented cat, and it's just timing. And I think he understands that. And they're going to be knocking down his door again. You know, they're going to be calling his number again because he's just a just a talented stand-up cat. And that's that's one of the biggest things we look for is, is people because you can have talent, but if you can't if you can't deal with people, you kind of get the feel for that. And uh, sometimes it works out for everybody, and sometimes it doesn't. But no is never the final answer. So try to tell people just because it didn't work out <clears throat> this series of tough enough or this, this tryout, don't don't shoot yourself in the foot, man, because you don't know what we saw in you or what we're thinking about for the future. And those three guys are perfect examples. Yeah, definitely. And um, I feel that the... That was a long been... answer, right? They're, they're, yeah, they're... it was great, though. 
But they're they're all three good cats. I've met a million good cats, and uh, I, I guess as a as an old coach, it's 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 cool to hear guys that took every their their you know interaction with you in a positive way. You know, it can, it can go two ways sometimes, but it's always good to hear. Yeah, definitely. And um, on the E60 special, it was great to see your interaction with Adam Rose as well, because it was like tough love. You got to nail this. You got to nail this. And then he nails it. And then you see the camaraderie and, and you know the love between you guys. That you know, hey, you, you did it, kid. Yeah, Ray. Ray is just a a good man and uh, truly in his truly in his corner in and in and out of of wrestling in life. And um, I was. I was happy with that piece. I thought it came off really well, and uh, I'm hoping it gives Adam Rose, uh, you know, a boost, some new life in the in the in the business. Um, yeah, that was it was cool. That was three years in the making. So hmm. now, if we can get off the serious stuff for a second and go into the laughing matter, if you will, the laughing okay. and the. Ma- the man of question. Now, not a lot of people can say that when they make their debut for a major company like WCW, they're basically immediately feuding with Macho Man Randy Savage. In their first promo, they mentioned Hulk Hogan, Sting, and Lex Luger. What was it like making that debut in WCW with Kevin Sullivan in the Dungeon of Doom? Yeah, I should have left right after that. <laughs> I, you know, that's always like if I get to sit around with <clears throat> some old friends or something, you know, my family or someone brings it up. I mean, who who would have thought you got brought in like that? So as a fan of the business, coming into that and knowing those guys, thinking to myself, holy crap. So, <laughs> and, but, I mean, that was it. And I appreciated, <clears throat> excuse me, 8 o'clock in the morning. I appreciated Kevin Sullivan giving me that opportunity um, I have have and had good relationships with all the men you mentioned, um, and it was you know it was kind of my thing. I came in to do my job, do it the best I could, whatever whatever position I was asked to play, I played. Uh, but that was awesome, man. So you couldn't you couldn't mess that promo up. You couldn't. It was Randy Savage. I mean, Randy Savage could make anybody do anything, and I mean that in a good way. And I got to run with Randy for like six months right off the bat on all house shows and between Randy and Sting and <clears throat> getting a nod from Hogan on so many occasions. That was, you know, one of the, the highlights of my career, and, and that's I think that's what kind of kept me around WCW so long. It's funny, me and uh, Chad were talking about it beforehand. We're like, man, uh, not a lot of people can say, when they debut with a company, you know, they, they feud with Macho Man, Randy Savage, one of the greatest of all time right away. But, I mean, that's kind of, you know, pretty much awesome, you know, for you. It's, it's, it's great because I can, I can picture the first conversation uh, with Randy, and it was, uh, don't, don't hurt me. As long as you don't hurt me, we're going to be fine. <laughs> and, and I thought to myself, oh, shit, I hope I don't hurt him. <laughs> And that was that was basically our conversation uh, every night. And after a while, he'd just call me laughing man, and and he'd ask me if I was good, and I said you good, and he goes you know you got it, and I said I got it, and 
by you got it meant I was going to follow his lead and put it to him a little bit until he had enough. And that, that was, I mean, that was an honor. And it was, it was really cool to get to know Randy outside of the ring as well. We got a chance to talk to uh, Diamond Dallas Page not too long ago, and he said that Randy, I mean, he said that all the stories are true. He's so intense. But in the ring, he said he would stiff the crap out of him. And he said when he would land the elbow, he said that he was basically his landing pad and that he just, boom, nailed the elbow. Is that true? Was, was he stiff and in the ring? He, he only, you know, he knew one way. And when you're, when you're at that level, apparently that works for you, so why would you change it? And some guys called it stiff and some guys said it was snug. Uh, I didn't mind. Um, in my defense, I have a little more padding than Dallas from the elbow. <laughs> but there's there's no doubt that that elbow, I mean, that elbow was coming. I mean, there was no, the way it looked was the way it felt. Uh, but I don't know. I, I think everybody has a different definition of stiff and snug. But that elbow was both stiff and snug. It was funny, uh, DDP said, he's like, he was kind of light on the house shows, but as soon as we got on TV, he stiffed the hell out of me. It's amazing what cameras and 16,000 people do to someone. <laughs> now, obviously, there was another huge guy that you ended up being able to wrestle, and I believe the quote was, hey, the streak had to start somewhere, and the Goldberg's first match on TV on Nitro in 97 was against you. What was it like wrestling Goldberg, and did you see him becoming like the mega, mega charismatic superstar that he was? Well, approaching, you know, probably like there's only two questions ever asked of me, and the first one's always Goldberg, and the second one is, hey, what was it like to be with Goldberg? <clears throat> so in 28 years, I I realized that Goldberg is my legacy, and I'm, 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 I say that with a smile on my face. I mean, we went into that night like anything else. The, the, depending on who you talk to and the version of the story was, I got told that, hey, we need to get this guy over. Okay, well, that's kind of my job. And if you go through the history of WCW from 95 to 2001, that was my job. And no problem with it. I don't think anybody saw what uh, – I'd say anybody but Bill. You know, he probably knew what he wanted to accomplish. But after that night, you, the way it was done, the, you know, just the way it was presented, however it, it happened, you knew that Bill was going to do something. And then to watch it turn into that, I don't think anybody – I didn't see it. I was happy with it. To me, he, to me, he was just Bill. And I don't mean uh, just another Bill. He was just Bill. Bill was always cool with me. Uh, I'm a fan of Bill as a person. I never thought it would be what it was, and I think as the storyline kept going, uh, the bookers and everybody else said, well, I wonder how far we can go with this, and he turned into one of the biggest things in wrestling history. So it, it was cool. I mean, to me, it was like wrestling another guy, a guy who wanted to get his backflip in, but another guy. You know, it's, it's actually funny. I was uh, I was at the Madison Square Garden Monday Night Raw the night of that match, the Goldberg versus Hugh Morris match, and we were lucky enough to be in a skybox, and we had Nitro on on the TV behind us. And I remember, I remember, remember very specifically, 
that we saw Hugh Morris and then we saw this guy come out and we're like, oh, you know, who is this guy? Like, oh, Hugh Morris getting a win, you know, whatever. And we saw Goldberg get the win. We're like, wow, this is definitely, maybe there's something, you know, different that they're planning with this guy. But I always found the way WCW featured you, whether it was on Saturday night or a match on Nitro, you always featured very prominently. And I, and I always felt they protected you very well. What were you, who, who was the guy that you worked with a lot? as like either one of your agents or somebody who, you know, presented you with what you were working on in WCW? Uh, uh, for for the last half of my career in WCW, I spent a lot of time with Arn Anderson. Uh, but I was with Jimmy Hart from the jump. Uh, and one of the things I, I think, and I say I think because I'm sure, but yet I'm not sure because everybody has a variation of it. I think the thing that kept people positive about me and Bobby Heenan and Mike Tanay and, and Tony Schiavone and all those guys on commentary that really sang my praises and Dusty Rhodes and, and, and all these legends that sang my praises was simply for the fact that I wasn't an asshole. I didn't, I didn't, I walked one way in front of the camera and I walked and talked a different way behind the camera. Um, and that's just my opinion. But I treated everybody with respect. I wanted to be there. I I wanted to learn. And yeah, they really did. If you all the commentary, uh, it was always positive. It, it was always something uplifting, whether I was doing the favor or not. It was always humorous. This and and kind of my accolades or what I could do or look out, he's coming or one of my favorite lines ever. Dusty Rhodes said, "Watch out for him. He's a sleeper." And I never forgot that line. And I was schooled by Jimmy Hart and Kevin Sullivan behind the scenes and then Arn Anderson and, and guys like uh, Ming and, and I had conversations with Ted DiBiase and and it, it goes back to treat people the way you want to be treated and I surround I was you know, I was surrounded by good people who wanted to show me something and in a time where I could have looked at them and went, Yeah, whatever, I'm already here I took it in and tried to tried to adapt it or apply it whenever I could. So when you got guys like Sullivan and Jimmy Hart and Arn Anderson and Ming uh, in your corner and giving just dropping knowledge on you, you take it and you run with a big boss man. I mean, I was just surrounded with guys who wanted to share, and there were some guys who wanted to listen and some guys who just felt like they had to listen. Yeah, and you make a great point about the announcers, and that's the positive role an announcer can play on a match is building up the superstar to what you want the perception of the audience to be. And it was, if Hugh Morris gets to the top rope and he hits the no laughing matter, it's over, and they made your finish to be something that you wanted to look forward to. Now, you yeah. also don't see someone your size getting to the top rope and performing that kind of feat. So how did that come about, and, and when was the first time you remember hitting that move? I hit that move. Uh, I put it. I wrote it in my in my first book. I did it. I was. I was. Uh, I had one or I think I only had one beer, but I might have had two beers. Uh, <laughs> there's a. I'm giggling while I say that. I think it was just one. One very long eight-hour beer. Um, <laughs> I was at a pool and guys were just messing around on a on a a very rare day off and we were in Puerto Rico and uh it was kinda like, Ah, you can't do that, yes I can, no I can't, yes I can. 
Um, the first time I did it was in Japan, and it was for the tag team championships. I don't know what year. Uh, Mr. Pogo and I teamed up against the Headhunters, and Kevin Sullivan said, tonight you do the the moonsault for the win. I said, nope. He says, you don't moonsault, you never work again. So long story short, I went up to the top rope, closed my eyes, and jumped backwards, and the flashing of the cameras was unbelievable. I landed and went, holy shit. I didn't, you know, the victory is great, you know, the way they celebrate Japan, awesome. But I was like, holy crap, that worked. So, but I was a fan of Muda and one a very good friend of mine. Uh, you know, when I saw Bam Bam Bigelow do it, you know, and then there was guys like Vader doing it, and I always teased all of them and said, you guys kind of go to the side. I'm going to go straight over. <laughs> so I, 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 I tried to, and that really pissed them off, by the way, but it was funny. But I just, I tried to do something that, guys my size weren't doing. And if that got me recognized from the other stuff I was doing, then cool, I was going to, I was going to use that. It turned out to be a staple in my arsenal for, for my career. And it was just kind of cool, but it, you know, it was one of those things that goes back to Sullivan. Sullivan saw it, thought there was something to it and said, do it. And I've never argued with Kevin and not done what he said. I was reluctant, but the cool little quick story to that was years later in New Japan, I on a three-week tour, night after night, Muda and I traded moonsaults, and I thought it was the coolest thing I'd ever done. Wow. That is awesome. Yeah, I I, I was looking, and I was like, man, i got to see this match. I saw, like, it was on a big show. It was Hugh Morris and Scott Norton against uh, Katsuki Sasaki and Great Muda. I guess he was Keiji Muto, but... Um, I was looking, I was like, man, i got to find that match on YouTube or something. That's awesome. It's not on there, is it? i I got to look for it, actually. I, I couldn't find it, but uh, hope maybe I can find it on one of, the, one of those sites. I am so not a fan of my stuff, so if you find it, delete it. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It seems like a great match. And obviously, we were talking about you working in Japan. I mean, that story with Muda, that's awesome. And then obviously you mentioned Mr. Pogo. You guys uh, were the wing tag team champions. What was it like for a young Crash the Terminator in Japan? And how were those fans to you? I mean, I didn't know anything when I was going to Japan. I was I was fortunate enough from Johnny Rods in Brooklyn. I met Hercules Ayala. He brought us down, you know, again, try to make a long story short. I was supposed to go to Puerto Rico, um, with Mondo clean for two weeks, they were going to try to run opposition to Carlos. Um, Mondo went to Florida. I wound up in Puerto Rico. Two weeks turned into two and a half years, and I was still learning. I was greener than goose shit, and I was still learning, but I had an opportunity. And my coach, Hall of Famer, I love that man, Johnny Rods, always told me to pay attention and make the most of an opportunity. So I was in Puerto Rico. I was getting ready to leave because I'd been here for two and a half years. It was just time to come home. I, you know, my my wife at the time was living in New Jersey and I was living in Puerto Rico. But if you want to learn and earn, you do what you have to do. Anyway, I got an opportunity to go to Japan, and the first thing I was told was, hit them the way they hit you because you're going to get tested. So, like I said, I'm still learning the business, but I was getting smarter every day, I thought. Uh 
with a lot of help from Chicky Star down in, in, in Puerto Rico. So uh, when I got there, I just made a statement, and they weren't real happy. The, the, young, the young Japanese boys there were trying to get a name for themselves, and they came to wing and thought that would be their opportunity. And here comes this, you know, six foot one, three hundred and fifty pound American kid, and they say, okay, he's he's up tonight. So the first kid, I can't remember his name, saved my life, tried to take my head off, and I turned around and took his head off, and the people reacted. And then the next night, people reacted, and I went, uh oh, I think I figured this out. But it was the fans were always awesome. It was, uh, you know, Japan's a love hate relationship for some guys. They hate it or they love it. I loved it. The three years I performed over there and toured there and did my thing over there, I loved it. And uh, Japan was a, a big part of, you know, my success. One thing we always, because we love uh, Japanese wrestling, so we always like to ask, you know, the wrestler on, we always say, like, um, like basically you said, how was the relationship uh, with the fans? Because sometimes they have a weird relationship of, uh, they say the Japanese fans, are very respectful and they sit on their hands a lot. But yeah. was the wing promotion different? Were, were they a little bit crazier? Oh, man, they heard your music. And once they knew that was your music and that was your entrance, they were on their feet. They, but wing, you know, what what started to become the claim to fame for wing was we were going to light ourselves on fire or jump off a three-story balcony or break the other guy's leg or whatever the, whatever the hell it was. Some of the stuff, you know, we got very – we were ECW before ECW, so we were we were, we were, were doing things. But the fans there knew after a while, if you had a good following, when your music hit, they were on their feet and they were calling for this signature stuff. So it was – my time in wing was really cool. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I got to wrestle a little bit more than the others. But I, I was in my share of chainsaw, bob wire, steel cage, back wire, blow your ass up matches. Hmm. You know, and actually, we'll kind of uh, we'll stick with Crash because the aforementioned AWF Crash Determinator had a hell of a run in the AWF. And the reason I brought it up as saying what I did before is because I remember stumbling across it as a young lad and seeing, I think it was like, you know, Bob Orton versus Tito Santana in a two-out-of-three falls match. And I remember saying to myself, like, what is this promotion? And, you know, you stick with it a little bit, and you see Crash the Terminator, and it's kind of a, you know, character that definitely in that time, you know, early 90s that stood out. What are your, uh, I hate to say, what are your memories of the AWF, but what are some of the, what, what do people not remember about the AWF? I mean, it, one of one of the the best story I have from the AWF. Um, my favorite story. I have two stories. The one the guy tried to sue me for being his champion and going to work other places. That was my introduction to politics. Um, my favorite story was I was I was. Uh, that's when I met Jeff Jarrett for the first time. And uh, Jeff and I were working there. You know, Jeff was in there, and Coco Beware was there, and. and you know, everybody was was in and out of there, and it was the locker room was really cool to be a part of because again there was knowledge being dropped. There was a bunch of guys having fun and wrestling in front of good crowds, you know. But Jeff Jarrett told me one time that he didn't see me staying there long, and what I was doing was working and to keep it up. I never forgot that because Jeff Jarrett was a veteran. 
a successful veteran who had a following and took time out to say to me, what you're doing works. Don't stop. You're going to be where you want to be. And that was my that was my fondest memory of AWF. Otherwise, to be honest with you, to me it was just another independent guy who, who kind of kept me steady working. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's Kim C's or not. I guess I was steady working because I did what I was asked to do, and I did it pretty good. And if you can do that surrounded by the Jarrett's and the Santana's and the, you know, all those cats at the time and, and, and Coco and Honky Tonk and and the other up-and-coming guys, because I was there with guys like Tom Brandy and and uh, Steve Carino was just cutting his teeth there, I think, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's, it's, you know, you, I don't know. I looked at wrestling different than everybody else. I was like, okay, I was hired for 50 bucks, 20 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever it was, to go wrestle. And I didn't wrestle according to what I was getting paid. I wrestled to try to to try to build a repertoire, wrestle to try to build a following, to try to be consistent. So my, my best memory of AWF was the conversations with Jarrett and getting to know him because they came into play later on when Jeff and I were in WCW together and, and just a relationship with Jeff. So that, that's my fondest memory of AWF. Yeah, it was funny because, uh, you know, the it was just the production quality was good. They had TV. I remember was watching it on the MSG network uh, in New Jersey. So uh, it was definitely just a random come across. But also, you know, the Road Warriors were in there for a little bit. Uh, Barry Darso. I mean, it was just it was a random stop for who's who. Almost like uh, later days, AWA, but just a few years down the road. And I got to mess around with guys like the Honky Tonk Man and stuff like that. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> so you know, it's all good. One question as, as I fast forward back to WCW. I was always curious of you're in WCW, you have the um, the Russo era quote unquote starts and they change your name to Hugh G Rection or General Rection. Did you mind yeah. that like weird like uh, pun or whatever you call it, that weird double entendre, like that weird name that they were throwing out there? Well it's funny, I, I just did Vince's uh podcast not too long ago. Vince Russo and I are good friends, we always have been, we always will be. And it was funny because I wasn't scheduled to work that pay-per-view. I think Booker got hurt. He had a concussion or something. I think it was Booker and Scott Steiner were in the middle of a a feud or something, something along those lines. <clears throat> and I think it was a simple thing of uh, being asked if I wanted to work tonight. And the answer is, hell yeah. That's always the answer. So, uh, and they said, okay, uh, Here's here's some verbiage and it's you know the, I think it was a one night one night only bill and I read it and I went you got to be kidding and you know I think the line was I'm, I'm tired of coming out here being something I'm not I'm gonna tell you my real name and who I really am and I introduced myself as Hugh G Rection <laughs> I, had to call, I had to call my mom because my mom was a big fan I had to try and explain it really quick and explain to my mom it was a one night only. And then the following night on uh, Nitro, I came out, and there it was in the bottom corner, making his way to the ring, huge erection. I went, uh-oh. <laughs> but, you, you, you know, you have, you have two options at that point. Say no, don't do it, and miss an opportunity, or say yeah and try to make the best of it. 
That huge erection turned into general erection, turned into the misfits, which brought me back to Bill DeMott. So in my world, uh, in wrestling terms, maybe a lot of people went, oh, that was the low point, that, that was the shift. But in, in my world and what I was accomplishing and in my career, that helped me set the tone. And here I am 28 years later still talking about it. So. And then, of course, you know, the big push, you become the United States champion. Eventually you win the uh, the tag titles at one point with Alex Wright. What was it like being the United States champion and, and having a, a cool little feud with Shane Douglas and having a cool little feud with Lance Storm? That, that, <clears throat> that's my favorite. And, and, it, and everybody says, well, you, you ran a little bit with Lance. Lance and I were married for the better part of a year. Um, live events, TVs. It was always the go-back-to match when nothing else was booked. Or people weren't showing up. What do we do? Let's put let's put Hugh and Lance back out there, um, and then Shane Douglas. I was just uh, and it sounds corny. I'm I'm almost 50 years old and it still sounds corny to say I was honored to give you know it's wrestling. You get a title. All it really does is add 35 pounds to your bag. It didn't <laughs> it didn't it didn't increase my pay. Um, my schedule didn't increase because I, I was on the road all the time anyway, and I was I was glad to be. Um, but I was just honored to be given an opportunity, and they saw that, and I had a, you know, I had a chance at it. So I had a chance at it, and it was kind of successful. And I think the people kind of, you know, if you watch it back, I think the people were into it, and I tried to tell a story. Um, but it was it was cool, man, and it's not, you know, at the end of the day. As my kids grow up, and I want you know, I want their kids to look and you know, what, what did that do? And he did this, and did I did I heal the world? No, but becoming United States champion and the people who were the U.S. champion before me to be on that list is incredible. So I, 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 that sounds very corny, but that's my honest answer. I loved it. I was flattered, and to do it two times was cool. And when you have a storyline that you can kind of sink your teeth in and believe in, then. I think that's what sells. So I don't know yeah. if that's the answer you're looking for, but that's the answer I got. No, that's oh, a great uh, that's a great assessment of it because it's as a you know as a fan and a guy who watched it. Obviously, we uh, it's very refreshing to hear. But you know, lest we forget the uh, you know that your storyline with uh, Lance Storm and Team Canada also featured the uh, dishonorable turn of Hacksaw Jim Duggan. But we're not even going to get into that today. So oh man, that was, <laughs> yeah, that's. I think that's still a sore spot because talk about a curveball. Yeah, yeah. With the beard shave, the turn to Canada. Oh, when he shaved, you don't think he swung that two by four just a little harder, do you? <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, though, such a uh, such a odd uh, just such an odd blip on the uh, the end of WCW. Which we're just gonna we'll fast forward to the end of WCW and over to the uh, the invasion. And you were, of course, a part of the move over um, from WCW to the WWF at the time. Just if you could take us back and, uh, you know, what were your uh, your impressions of the purchase by Vince of WCW and then the subsequent invasion storyline and the summer of possible missed opportunity with the WCW versus WWF storyline? Well, <clears throat> I mean, I've said, it, I've said it a bunch of times. I think for me it just – when we were in Panama City and saw the upper echelon there and we saw some of the signs on the doors, everybody knew the writings on the wall because there had been months in the talking and 
well, what are you going to do? And my big plan was to try to figure out how to get back to Japan or something because I was, I'm a wrestler, and that's what they do. So I didn't really think much of it. I didn't burn any bridges on either side. So I was just going to do my job that night, and I opened the show dark, and I was asked to do that, and I did it because I was asked by Shane McMahon. So I figured, well, he's the boss now, so do what the boss says. Fast forward, I I was I was brought into uh, WWE and was the second guy in the invasion behind my my good buddy Lance, and I thought things were really going to take off pretty good. Uh, it started off shaky, being introduced to WrestleMania only as a, a silhouette because we had already pissed off the office and we weren't even there yet. So the the introduction to the WWE was difficult for for a lot of guys and and girls because if you came from WCW it was laid back and there was no I don't want to say there was no professionalism but there was a lack of it and there was a lack of a lot of things uh, the guidance was there if you took it the professionalism was there if you wanted to learn it but a lot of them didn't have to and and didn't care to. So the ones who did get the opportunities as as they were falling short was because they'd never been in a locker room before. They'd never been, you know, anywhere else but the power plant and offered 85 grand to start and things like that. So I'd like to think I was prepared for it, and I think that's what, uh, lack of a better term, made me a survivor of the invasion. Um. You gotta remember there was there was a hundred guys there before us trying to get TV time, and I think that was the downfall of just my opinion of the WCW thing and then ECW joining it and all. They kept looking for how do we how do we spark it, and it was just uh, you know in the back it was a lot of guys jockeying for position and rightfully so. So I you know who's to say I'm I'm no booker I can guess and I can you know. And I think that's one of the things that pisses people off about me is I'll go, listen, man, I don't I don't have the answer for that, but I have the answer for you. Tell me what you want from me, and I'll do it. Uh, I think if we had more guys who had that mentality at the start, the invasion might have gone better. But, you know, who knows? There's, the conspiracy theories are like dozens. Some wanted it to fail. Some didn't want us there. Some this, some that. The, the bottom line for me is Vince is a businessman. If he thinks it's going to draw put ass in the seat, he's going to do it, and we kept trying formulas, and I'd say even after WCW and ECW have been gone, uh, he's still got the formula because he's still doing it. Totally, and uh, you, you had some time, you, in 2003, you came back uh, after going down to, uh, I believe it was the HWA for a little bit, and you had a awesome push as a monster heel and you were dominating through uh that undercard and when you got that opportunity to get back into a main spot as a you know as basically taking over that monster heel role uh you know taking guys out left and right was that a lot of fun to uh get back into swinging things but granted a little bit after the invasion yeah that was great i mean it, I, I was ready for that one i was i was i was really ready uh uh, the direction was clear, which was very helpful. This is what we want. Can you do it? Hell yeah. Um, 
and that's I think that correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's the time when Kishi and I started going at it. Yep. And yep. it was gonna build. It was gonna build to something, and then one person gets hurt, or another person gets hurt, or and you know you just you just move on. So I was I was ready for that, and uh, that was an exciting time for me because I was in a zone. I was in a whole different place. Uh, I mean, I don't mean that in a bad way. I was in a different place. Like my mind was set. Like I'm gonna be that guy. And they're going to have to tell me to stop doing things or stop <laughs> stop going <laughs> forward. And it was it was cool. But I said to everybody before I worked with them, whoever it was, I'm like, hey, man, just, yeah, appreciate it, but here I come. And it was, uh, it was great because there was a lot of smaller guys on the roster coming in at that time. So Rikishi was like the biggest big man on the babyface side, you know, I mean, I think outside of Lesnar, who was the champ, and then you were the big heel, so it was made perfect sense that you were just destroying guys left and right. And, and honestly, the WWE machine with, you know, your theme music when it hit and your look, it was just, it was very refreshing that at that point, especially with the brand split, you know, you had your own, uh, your own unique uh, vibe to you. Uh, but you also then, yeah. so then, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you're right. I was just agreeing. Yeah, and then you actually, funny enough, made a transition into commentary very briefly uh, after that. And, and, you know, could you talk about your transition to getting behind the mic? Yeah, the, the transition for me was simple. I broke my neck and couldn't compete. That makes and sense. I was given <laughs> an opportunity. Uh, I was contacted by uh, Kevin Dunn and Michael Cole, and uh, I was given an opportunity, and I never, never saw myself doing something like that. And... Uh, I think the I think the term they I think the vision was they wanted to make me the Howie Long of the commentary you know uh, bigger guy who's going to cut my hair a certain way and and do things a certain way um, so I got that I got the initial push in 2003 coming off of my first season of Tough Enough uh, got going. I got injured where I just I could not function anymore and it was turned out to be my neck. So I got my neck fixed, and I, got, I joined the commentary uh, team and, and got to do that for just over a year. And it, it wasn't a hard transition. I think the cool thing, and I've always said it to guys when I've worked with them, you know, all the time, was that somebody has to talk about the talent. I mean, there's a lot of cutting to – graphics, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot more about the business, too, that way. My deal was I wanted to talk about the guy in the ring because otherwise if there was nothing to talk about, we were pushing a pay-per-view that wasn't going to happen for three weeks or we were talking about something in the past or we were just changing the conversation to keep to keep momentum so there's no dead air. So I really wanted to put each guy over. I didn't care who was going over. I wanted to talk about Jimmy Yang or I wanted to talk about Bob Holly or I wanted to talk about – you know, because my thing was velocity. So I wanted those guys to be like it was done for me, backtrack to WCW. You, you make them, you you talk about them the right way, and that's how they're going to be perceived. So that was really cool. It was a good learning process for me uh, as I kept going. Now, transitioning from announcing, and obviously you, you obviously still wrestle a little bit, but you became um, a trainer. 
Now you listed a, a, a list of guys who you've trained as a who's who. I mean, you had great names if you went through them all. Well, I'm not going to name them, but you, you know, great guys you went through. I feel like um, you as a trainer it was great. Old school, tough. Uh, if you can uh, handle it there, you can make it to the big leagues, which obviously WWE is the biggest league you can get to. And um, I feel like that's the way people should be trained. Maybe I'm old school or whatever, but I feel like that's the way the training always should be and always should go. But do you enjoy the training aspect more than the wrestling, or, or you know, or is it equal, or, or what do you think about that? I, I, um, if I had my choice now, back then, I'd, I'd be wrestling. Um, but that, I think it all came from when, especially in, in, in WWE, when before the shows and stuff, I was in the ring with the younger guys and other guys wanting to try things and learn things and break a sweat. I had an opportunity to start training guys because I wanted to be there. And I think John Laurinaitis saw that and the powers that be and, and Jim Ross and everybody. And I just had opportunities. And there's a there's a big difference between training old school and being old school. And it's just a philosophy I have. Um Training old school means taking what we did, what what helped make us successful or brought us into the business, and bringing that training into what we're doing. Being old school is not differing from that and telling everybody to shut the hell up and do it this way because it's the only way. I don't train old school. I train old school. I'm not old school. I'm old school at heart, but I train old school with a new mentality. Um, The thing for me... Uh, and for some some other coaches that have done this or, or been in a position to be the heat guy, my reputation comes from reality TV. So as soon as people hear the name Bill DeMott, they don't think of Hugh Morris or Crash or Hugh Erection or for whatever else it is. People this generation, Bill DeMott, only, and with the success of Tough Enough comes right, notoriety. So they hear Bill DeMond, they go, oh, shit. But hmm. until they got to know me, they realized that I have, I train old school, but I don't think old school. Because ultimately your job is to get people better and to help them move on. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing your job, right? So that's the way I attacked it. Um, I found every transition easy. The thing that everybody should hear and know is that you have to be open to change and and change is the biggest part doesn't mean you're not doing your job doesn't mean you're not prepared doesn't mean you're not capable of becoming a bigger star you just have to be open to change in front of the camera behind the camera uh with people with people you know with people you don't know um that's my long answer for my transition every time i found it easy um the thing that that constantly needs work is perception and I think because we're in that era of politically correct and uh, you know just because I'm talking to you guys one way someone's going to listen to this podcast and take what I said the wrong way and I'll be all over the internet again by tonight and uh, (laughs) America's darling all over again so it's just perception and what people hear I'm talking to you guys and someone's going to think out there I told them they can't be successful and that's all they're going to say so the transition is easy. 
you have to love what you're doing in this in this time of sports entertainment to be a part of it. And then you have to love it enough to know what's working and what's not working and, and you know, just adapt. Yep. Very true. Now that's, that's a long answer, just, right? That's no, a great answer though. <laughs> um as we wind down here, and you said, like, a lot of people think of Bill DeMott, you know, they, they're scared of you and stuff, but uh, I think of, uh, you know, growing up a um, huge uh, WWE fan, when I think of your name, I always think of the great laugh, you know, the the laughing man and uh, and, <laughs> you, and a few with Macho Man and stuff and, uh, you know, Kevin Sullivan and Dungeon Doom and stuff like that, so it's pretty cool. But what would you say is your favorite match or maybe fit matches that you've ever had? I th- one that sticks out for me was my first time with, uh, I want to say now, I could be wrong because there's a whole lot of people who remember the stuff I did better than I do. Um, I main evented against Hulk Hogan. And I got the classic back rake and the leg drop, and I was like a kid in a freaking candy store. I will never forget the conversation that Hogan had with me after that match. Uh, that just solidified that I should be wrestling, and I got to do it with one of the best. And that's not to belittle the fact that I've been in the ring with The Undertaker and with Ric Flair and uh, you name them, uh, with, with Scott Hall and with Kevin Nash and all these other guys. And <clears throat> I've been in the ring with Brock and and side-by-side and, and side with Paul Heyman, all these people I've been in the ring with. But my favorite feud and I've said this on, on a million occasions, is my time with Lance Storm I thought was incredible. Um, I learned a lot from Lance. Lance has a, a theory of in-ring stuff and, and putting things together, and I enjoyed Lance. And I, I enjoyed Lance, one as a person outside the ring and then in the ring, because it was two guys who, who wanted that opportunity. And we weren't afraid to push each other. Um it was just great communication. It was it was two guys being honest with each other, and and I think we to, I think we told a hell of a story for the time we were together. Uh, so Lance is my favorite opponent, my favorite storyline, the favorite thing I did. But there's so many that I could never never name. I mean, if you're lucky in this business, for all these kids that are coming up or get opportunities, you might get in the ring once with anybody I named, and I've been. Oh, I got to run with every one of them. So that's a hard question for me. And that's like I'm sitting here like a kid right now thinking about everything I've I've gotten to do, and it's, like, amazing. So Lance is my favorite opponent, and that's not to belittle Savage or anybody. I just I just had a special thing with Lance, uh, but there's too, there's too many to mention. Yeah, there's, I mean, we search our brains ourselves just thinking of, you know, the great matches you had and some of the feuds. But we, we, we ask this question in two ways. It's either, you know, your legacy in the, in the business or where you see yourself in five years. And I kind of put you right in the middle of you have a hell of a legacy of what you've accomplished so far, but also we know that you're, you're definitely not done. So if you could encapsulate both of those into one answer, what is – the, B, the the legacy of Bill DeMott, the, the BDE experience, if you will, and where do you see Bill DeMott in five years? Well, I think I think my legacy will be defined by who you talk to. 
Uh, I've done, I'll stand by, I've done what I've been asked to the best of my ability. Uh, good, better, and different, my coach said, as long as they're talking about you, it's good. So I think I've done that because uh, as of late, I've been a huge topic of conversation to people who probably don't even know anything about wrestling. Um, my legacy is I'm a kid from New Jersey who did something he found and fell in love with and became very good at it and made a 28-year career. What I'm doing in five years is hopefully the same thing, and that's why I'm starting this project to build the experience because my legacy has been build the the hard-ass, the no-nonsense, the this guy, he's mean, he's this, and I'm going to bring build the the same guy, and try to experience other things. I want to meet other coaches in life. I, I want to meet uh, – I'm going to try to go out there and meet people from all walks of life, uh, particularly people who have coached in some way, shape, or form. There are pastors that I'm going to meet. There, there are uh, just all kinds of people, and I want to get their take on life experience, dealing with others, guiding people, and, and just having a little fun. More importantly, I'm never going to change the perception of Bill DeMott, but I'm going to open the doors to people and let them see Bill DeMott. So that's why it's called the Bill DeMott Experience. And for everybody who's never worked with me and seen the guidance counselor, the big brother, the father, the, you know, the Boy Scout leader, all these things that you have to be when you're put in a position to to lead a uh, a group of talented people, a negotiator, all these things. So that's the build my experience. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm done in this industry. I think it's it's good to have a break once in a while. I'm a big fan. I'll continue to follow NXT because I've, I've helped get it, I think, to where it is. Uh, but the build my experience is going to be really cool. I'm hoping I, I'm going to put a couple episodes in the can, and then uh, I'm going to start getting them out there and uh, – I expect uh, both sides of the coin. I expect people to go, hey, that's cool, and other people go, oh, you son of a bitch. So I think that's my legacy. I, I, I firmly believe I could uh, save the world, and someone will be there to say, Bill DeMott caused the world to fail so we can save it. And I say that with humor. I don't say that with any malice. Uh, the, the cool thing for me is I, if I've gotten this reputation – that means I must have done my job in and out of the ring, right? A hundred percent. Actually, hundred and ten percent. There's always got to be a bad guy in the movie. There's always got to be a... I embrace that role. J.J. Dillon told me one time, a long time ago, that he was the heat guy, and I never understood what he meant by that. And he was the bearer of bad news, and no matter who made the decision, it was his to deliver, and and he had to do things he didn't necessarily want to do or agree with, but that was his job. And it took me a, a long bunch of years to understand what J.J. meant by that. So my legacy is my name is Bill DeMott. I'm the heat guy. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the right guy for that, for that job because I understand that at the end of the day it's just business. Um, and at the, I try to remember that in everything I do. At the end of the day, it's just business. So... Build them out. The person has launched the Build My Experience. I hope everybody tunes into that stuff. So it should be some fun stuff. Should be some really cool stuff. Um, there's probably a few emotional episodes in there, but 
it should be good, man. I look I look forward to it. In five years, I hope to be talking to you guys as your show explodes and we can do this again and go, holy crap, remember that time five years ago we were talking about this? <laughs> yeah, it's very very inspiring, you know, what you said. It's uh it it's it sounds fantastic and please Tell the uh, please tell the fine folks where exactly they can find Build the Mod to find out more about the Build the Mod experience. Well, you can go to I have a, I have a, just a Facebook page on Build the Mod, and I, I you know, uh, corny or not, I try to every morning put out a positive message because that that's really who I am. I'm I'm one of the most positive people I know. Of course, I'm the only guy in the room, but uh, <laughs> uh, so I you know uh, as as most people know, I, I can be found on Twitter. <laughs> uh, and then and then going forward uh the build my experience will probably be launched as a youtube channel at first but there's some there's some cool things in the works and I, and I have a few opportunities uh coming up to be in front of the screen again so uh any anything is possible with me um and i'm, I'm just trying to prepare for it awesome well i'm going to end it right here but i just want to personally say this has been a hell of an interview. We really appreciate it. And, you know, all the, the BS that's out there. I mean, it's just like if perception is reality, we just got real. And I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and, and talking with us. Well, I appreciate you guys. And uh, thanks for letting me, uh, I don't know, share share something. Uh, and I really do appreciate it. Um, yeah, if perception is reality, right, you, you, the golden rule for every wrestler who's listening to this, is you don't know who's in the room. Perception is reality. You don't know who they are. So treat them the way you want to be treated. And Definitely. I appreciate you guys. I wish you nothing but the best. And I hope we get.